Hello, everyone, and welcome to DevOps Decrypted. You might be a little confused considering that you're not hearing Romy's voice right now, and that's completely understandable. My name is Ryan Spilkin, and I'm filling in for Romy today because um, basically she's lost in the jungle. So who's helping me uh, find the way out of the jungle of DevOps? Well, I'm joined today by Jobin Kuravilla, Rasmus Presthome, and John Mort. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Hey, Ryan. I I am very sorry for not being Romy. Sir, I mean, I am. I just, you know, you're going to have to work with me today. It, it is a big deal, but I think uh, we're okay. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Jobin. Well, the first thing that we wanted to look at today on, on DevOps Decrypted was Atlassian Unleashed. Who let the dogs out exactly in that case? But the biggest dog that they let out of the uh, they let out on the unleashed it seems to be product discovery. Why is product discovery newsworthy, John? Well, uh, so we've been using Jira product discovery sort of in, internally um, uh, since the like the beat we could get on get on the beta, um, and uh, it's it's actually it's a product I'm quite quite excited about, or the problem area that I'm quite excited about there being there being a good solution in. Um, because I, I, I feel like um, as a kind of software in industry, we, we're optimizing pretty well the delivery, the delivery aspect of, uh, of 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 software and things, and but we're not necessarily delivering the right thing, like in and that kind of question of like, was it, was it worth it? Did it meet the customer need? And I, the sort of things that's that's been that's that's I see that as being the really big problem in in, in software and, and Jira discovery. Um, Kind of like takes take some steps towards solving that and, and making that a yeah making making that um meeting that customer need much more much more visible um throughout things so i think um i have high hopes for the product and we've enjoyed using it as well um it's been it's been really useful when in, in, in our internal usage so jobin and rasmus might disagree they might say well i don't know if we've gotten delivery down pat just yet but um <laughs> <laughs> but uh do we think that that how does Jira product discovery help teams find out what the customer is really looking for? Uh, that's the thing that doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to the uh, announcement. I think the, the biggest thing that attracted me was, you know, gathering customer insights. That's the highlight in that particular part, which is um very essential to know what the customer wants, right? So I think that's about that I am very keen about. Obviously, as John said, you know, with DevOps and everything that we are doing, DevOps engineers are doing to get customers, deliver something. I think things are getting much better. But what should we deliver? What is actually the product there? I think that's where the customer is important. Gathering that customer insights, that will help you get there. It makes me uh, think of value stream mapping, which is a good thing. And even though, of course, there's always more we can do in just kind of like general DevOps and tooling and optimizing and so on, I do very frequently come back to thinking that, hey, wait a minute, we got to also remember the soft things, the ones that aren't just about tools and delivery and so on, the people and the process and the product. So while I may not be particularly familiar with this thing, I, I've you know bumped into some other ideas gathering pieces of software, and it's good to have. And this this can only be a good thing in that in that, in that sense. 
from the customer's perspective, is the data collection side transparent? Is it something they have to opt into? What what does that look like? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, same here. I, I'm actually looking forward to using it and see see what exactly happens here. I mean, another thing that interested me was, you know, the discoverability. So it talks about, you know, integrating delivery and discovery. So yeah, I'm definitely hoping to try it out and see see what exactly they mean by that. Well, so one of the things that that it, that it does do, and I think does do pretty well, is it makes the discovery element like part of the like a, something that the whole team can participate in it's not mm. just not just the purview of um you know like the the pro product management organization or the or, or the user research and uh, things like actually the entirety of the team and, and anybody who's got insights can provide insights um you can um you, you can vote on things uh you, you can apply risk assessments look at you know how much how much impact a, a feature would would look at um efforts and uh, effort analysis and those, those sorts of things so it kind of the thing i really, really like about it is is that it is that team inclusive um beyond on the things and so if you have an insight from a customer you can you can just attach it to the to the the um the the ticket the the, the that represents that that idea um and and, and just, just go use it and, and because it's jira and they're all models is, is issues all of the rest all of the other jira stuff just works with it so you're reporting dashboards um and and like links and things all just it all just works which is kind of powerful and ryan you might be thinking why why can't we answer some of these questions because you know this was this product is actually was in beta it just became generally available or it is becoming generally available just now and that's what atlassian announced in the unleashed event um, mm. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, it's finally getting to our hands. All right. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on product discovery or the and uh, report back if there's any interesting developments there. Other news that Atlassian is really pushing right now uh, coming from Unleashed would be Jira work management for free and new templates. I'm going to say that's marketing. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Is that is that controversial? I don't know. I mean, we're getting something for free. I mean, I'll take it. That's fine. That's fine. They've also released some new templates. Did any of the new templates, um, uh, would they have appealed to our uh, DevOps listeners? Is there anything in there for the DevOps practitioner? I do see BSM in there. Um, so probably, yeah, there's some value stream management templates in there. I don't know. I mean, I'm seeing templates around operations, Workflows, permission schemes, that's all normal. Um, no, so we, we have to try it out and see what exactly it does. The Adaptivist group has some news dropping it Unleashed too, am I right? Yeah, so so we did actually went ahead and announced a new DevOps platform called Venue DevOps. Um, it is a new business unit within the Adaptivist group, which will be focusing on DevOps tooling and DevOps as a service. Uh, more on that to come out soon. Uh, there is a website out there. Uh, it is called Venue DevOps. And uh, one of our participants, Rasmus, is keenly invested in that. Um, there's a website out there if you want to go get an early preview of it. We'll we'll include a link to the website on in the show notes. Rasmus, tell us a little bit about Venue. So you are designing backend uh, diagrams and the nerd stuff for Venue. 
Um, it, it really goes back to that whole bit about the soft stuff I mentioned earlier in that anybody can give you a marketplace that spins up applications or connects one tool to another tool. But I find that the value is in there in what can we do to better support and templatize the soft stuff? And how can you do that with people and process? Well, mm -hmm. we're about to find out. So Erasmus, right. just to put, put, put that in perspective. So if I am the customer who is coming to Adaptivist, um, so when you basically offers me not just a DevOps tooling, but also, you know, maybe templating around the people and the process and things like that, and, you know, the services around those tools, everything. Yep. We have uh, sort of been bandied around the, the term DevOps as a service or DevOps tooling as a service as an interesting contrast on, well, for all these platforms and marketplaces out there, are you actually getting DevOps, including the cultural pieces, some sort of some sort of material that'll help you encourage your fellow coworkers on just adopting more sane practices and helping discovery, visibility inside the company, all these kinds of other things. So I'm hoping that's where uh, this is going to uh, make more progress. And to completely translate that into the customer's language, I can finally focus on the business problems and not worry about DevOps and the tooling. Yep, DevOps is going to make itself disappear, in a sense. <laughs> Work so hard that we don't get hired again. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. And alongside our talk uh, about Venue, Alexander Post, the Managing Director of Venature, spoke about how to automate key result reporting using JIRA and quantitative results. So OKR measurement, does that does that fall into the DevOps world? I mean, anything that's a metrics can. I, I would say absolutely, yeah. I mean, companies run some, and uh, you know, the way they can keep track of the progress is using OKRs and, you know, measure the progress, right? So I haven't seen the talk, but you know, it sounds very interesting to me. And obviously it definitely falls in the DevOps realm. So I should probably go and take a look at that. Yeah, it's it's something that Alexander's helped a number of organizations do is, is and it's it's in that, you know, like we were talking about Jira product discovery, is that making sure that we're building the right thing, like I, I make sure we're going in the right direction and that we're aligned on things. So um yeah, that's very much in the that's very much in the DevOps mindset. We are also going to be at the Cloud Expo on 8 to 9 March, um, and that's in London. We'll be there on GitLab stand doing some demos. Gentlemen, tell us about that. Um, it's going to be an interesting event. Uh, so obviously, Cloud Expo is one of the biggest events around cloud and DevOps in general um, in the Europe. Uh, this time, we are going along with our strategic partner, GitLab. Uh, GitLab obviously does a lot of things in that area, and that's going to be at least two or three demos in the GitLab stand. One of them uh, will be uh, around uh, deploying to Kubernetes um, using the native integration GitLab has with Kubernetes. And I will probably be doing that. Uh, that's the plan as of now. So I'm going to be in London. If anybody wants to come and say hi um, in the GitLab booth, uh, I'll be there. Uh, along with uh, me, two other folks, gentlemen from GitLab, uh, will be presenting different topics. I think one is around shifting left, and the other one is around executive insights within GitLab. Uh, so a lot of interesting topics there. Um, stay tuned. 
Okay, so listeners, if you are going to be at the Cloud Expo 8 to 9 March uh, this year, go up to Jobin and say, DevOps Decrypted sent me, and he will hook you up with all the merch he's allowed to give out, okay? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I can do that. Turning our focus to DevOps in the news, Google has seemingly released a tool that is extremely good at wiping off market valuation. It's called BARD. Um, From a DevOps perspective, what happened there? What a disaster. So uh, I think this may actually have nothing to do with DevOps, but something that kind of justifies Google's caution in the first place. The way that this perspective rolls in one way is that OpenAI, as a almost relative unknown nonprofit small thing that came out of nowhere and just like, boom, suddenly this chat GPT thing came out and just went viral and, and crazy. And a lot of people are happy to sort of glance over the drawbacks it has about bias and other kinds of things you can make it do. Because, I mean, they're, they're new. It's fine. It's fine. And part reason Google has been so reluctant to release and, and just like put everything out there because they've had the tech behind BOD for years is because whenever Google presents something, it gets viewed in a very specific way. And that's exactly what happened when Bard made a, I understand, kind of like a trivial or easy to make mistake for, you know, a model like that. And then it's like, oh, no, it's the end of the world. And like Google is doomed and all these kinds of things. So I think it's it's a storm in a teacup. And we will see how Bard actually can handle going up against ChatGPT or Bing sometime in the uh, in the coming months. But we can't even get to it yet. So... Unlike last week, we can't make it, you know, make the title for this podcast episode, which is a bit of a pity, but oh well. But I think also there's a quality issue here. Like, surely if you were going to put out a demo, you'd make it right. You'd just spend a bit of time and do it, a, do it, a, do a bit of the, uh, a little bit of a quality test on it. I think it's all about the data, right? I mean, we talk about machine learning and, you know, there's a lot of data around and it's only as good as the data. I remember uh, there was a case study about, I think it was a hiring process in one of the universities in England. Um, So basically they they use machine learning to, you know, start um, sorting out the resumes. Now, what really happened was uh, obviously they were taking into account the past, um, uh, you know, hirings and, you know, that was what was considered. There was definitely a lot of bias involved in the past when people were hiring in that university. And what happened was the data was actually validating that bias. And, you know, unfortunately, the machine learning algorithm picked up that bias and, you know, used that data and obviously picked up that bias and, you know, started using the same bias in its hiring process. That's what's going to happen. So it's only as good as the data. I mean, that reminds me of the time when um, I believe it was Microsoft released a chat bot that within 24 hours turned into a racist scumbag. Exactly. That that was another one. Yeah, I didn't want to mention that one because... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for, Jobin. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have actually seen a video where uh, people accuse ChatGPT of leaning left. So that Mm. that's coming. It's only going to get worse as modern. What's interesting to me was, you know, ChatGPT, it only takes into account the data until 2021. Whereas BARD is going to look at the entire internet and, you know, gather information from all around the internet. So I'm curious how it's going to behave 
when different questions are asked, depending on what's what's latest happening in the world. Well, as long as Bard can't predict the future, I think we're still safe. I think we're still uh, pretty far away from the Skynet scenario. But tools like this, tools like Bard, tools like ChatGPT, they have to have a fairly sophisticated backend supporting them. And there has to be some DevOps overlap there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's where people call it MLOps, right? So machine learning ops. Uh, and it just so happens that Rasmus Jobin and I got to interview GitLab's Peter Bajo over MLOps. Let's take a listen to that interview now. And now, Jobin, Rasmus, and I get to welcome to DevOps Decrypted Peter Bajo, a channel solutions architect for GitLab. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Hello, Peter. Hey, hey. Peter, you focus quite a bit of your work on DevSecOps, but you're not necessarily here to talk about that. We're, we're going to dive into MLOps in a second. But before we do, tell us just a little bit about your work in DevSecOps. What do you focus on in that area? Usually, I, I would say it's not even my personal focus, let's say. So it's in the last couple of months or almost maybe years, DevSecOps is the overall strategy for GitLab, right? So I would say it's more, more correct to say that every solution architect at GitLab is very strictly focusing on DevSecOps right now. And we are different in kind of like which particular part of the security we are more narrowing into or, or a certain technology or a certain partner technology, this kind of stuff. But I would say DevSecOps is really in the mind of everybody right now at GitLab. So that's like top of the strategy for us. And yeah, I, I, I am on that as well. I And I am approaching this whole topic more from the developer side. So like the dev part of DevSecOps, because my experience is more on the software engineering part of the whole DevOps, DevSecOps thing. So I usually looking at the security from that point of view. So Peter, tell us more about MLOps and how exactly is it different from DevSecOps or DevOps in general? I mean, everything is ops these days. I think uh, we, we even had a blog post spread it in the future. And, you know, we, we typically put, we actually put that headline in there, everything has ops. So how is it different? What exactly is MLOps? Yeah, I think, uh, Jobin, you put it right. Yeah, everything is getting ops. We even have a thing at, at GitLab called emops. So, yeah, everything is ops now. MLOps, I would say, I, I like to look at, at, like, I think MLOps is essentially a superset of DevOps or DevSecOps. So, in my point of view, MLOps have the exact same challenges and issues and difficulties as DevOps. and a little bit more even on top of that, just by the nature of, of machine learning, right? Because in traditional software development, so Dev, DevOps or DevSecOps, the logic, the main piece of deliverable that you do is basically the source code, right? That's what everybody's working on. That's what you review. That's what has the bugs or that what, that's what drives your business. And MLOps is, is that. And a bit more, right? Because in MLOps, you have its model ops, right? Or machine learning ops or or whatever, how you how you uh how you say it. But let's 
put to the uh, stick to the machine learning ops. And in that case, what is a machine learning model is essentially right. It's data, an algorithm which is code, and some uh, parameters. Essentially, this is what makes a model. So source code is there, definitely, just like in DevOps, like in normal software development. But you put the data there as well and the parameters, and these three things together brings a lot of challenges on their own. So I would, I would say it's something like that. So uh, I also had a thought about this earlier in, in how do you contrast it to DevOps and came up with the idea of looking at embedded hardware development where you have some actual like physical pieces involved in the process. How do you speed that up? How do you DevOps? Yeah, exactly. Job, take a board and put it into the test stand. Just with MLOps, you're dealing with a model made up by data and so on, but it's still not kind of one of your traditional artifacts in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the similarities is certainly there. It's both of them are DevOps extended, so to say, <laughs> with their own challenges. So can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you experience just focusing on the data sets interfacing with the code itself? Yeah, what we what we usually see uh, inside GitLab at our customers is that data is is usually very big data sets, right? So it's much bigger than just source code. And that's what that's what it also makes it very difficult to version, right? Because source code, it's easy. It's just text files. You can compare, you can see. Even moving the data with Git is, is pretty, pretty quick, right? But doing that with data, it has it, its own challenges. So doing that with traditional DevOps tools, is very, very difficult just by the sheer amount of the data that you have to move in between your local computer and the server. So because of that, we at GitLab looking at what the industry is doing and trying to incorporate, incorporate some new features into GitLab to accommodate these needs, mainly, mainly the handling of the data together with the code, right? So not just like, okay, I have my source code in a Git repository in GitLab, and I have my data in whatever storage solution that you have. So we are trying to put all these in the same bucket with the parameters, so that's what makes up the model, and put the whole thing together on GitLab. So it can it can be one package, essentially, one unit of, of, of data or, or, or machine learning or models, basically. Okay, so... If I'm curious, because I have to link everything these days to chat GPT, if I had infinite money and was actually smart, and I said, I'm going to make a chat GPT competitor, here's a GitLab, what do I do? Like, what's the first step? Is it something just like you read some blog entries and figure it out? Or are you going to put a nice big black button somewhere that just says, like, create MLOps thing? It, it looks, yeah, certainly you need to read a bunch of blog posts. I would need to read a bunch of blog posts to start on ChatGPT. <laughs> That's for sure. A couple of textbooks, but yeah, uh, on the on the side of GitLab, so it looks like that currently almost all of the MLOps features that we have are either in private beta or will be in private beta soon. So, so in the currently available version of GitLab that is on GitLab.com or what you can install on your own servers, there are basically two main features that can be relevant for creating something like ChatGPT, so working in the machine learning space. One 
is actually not that relevant, but that's something that's that's there, that's usable for a long time now, is the Jupyter Notebook support, support that we have, and a lot of machine learning folks are using that. So Jupyter Notebook is essentially, you can think about such a thing like a document, which is very interactive, so you can have their text, some code, some algorithms, and, and you can present some data experiments in such a document. So that is first class in GitLab right now. So it works like what, what I mean by having first class support for Jupyter Notebooks in GitLab is that you, when you are doing a code review as part of a merge request, you can actually render the Jupyter Notebook because Jupyter Notebooks are just JSON files, essentially. So you can compare the JSON, but that's not really useful if you want to understand what happened. So what GitLab can do, it can render the page and you can actually compare, okay, how the outlook roughly will look like. That's something that could be useful for machine learning, not certain, not strictly just for stuff like chat GPT or something like that, like an like a really smart chatbot. What we are having and what is what is currently, I think, let me check my notes. Yeah, it's still in in this dog fooding phase. So we are using internally, but it's it will be in private beta soon, which is the experiment tracking feature of GitLab, which is, I think, would be the most useful for developing something like that. So experiment tracking is essentially, you can think about it, it's very similar to a Git repository in terms of like storing the in-progress stuff, <laughs> so to say, so the code, not the not the finished artifacts, but in this case, it's it's storing machine learning experiments, which is, as I mentioned before, is basically data, the algorithm, and some parameters together. So that's something that could be really useful. If somebody is more familiar in this space about the tooling, it's essentially an MLflow backend integrated into GitLab. So MLflow is a tool which you can use. It's it's a, it's not by GitLab. It's a, I think it's an open source application, actually. And MLflow is basically something that you can either host yourself or you can use the SaaS version. And it's a backend where you can store runs of your experiments, right? So you are running the experiment on your local computer with your machine learning algorithms and data, and it will store the different runs in the server. And that's something that right now, or not right now, but soon you will be able to do in GitLab as well. So for example, if you are training a algorithm, an AI, something like ChatGPT, so the machine learning model for such an AI, that you can do on your local computer, but the end result of these experiments end up in GitLab, essentially. And everybody in the team can see, okay, changing the, the data set or changing this parameter will end in this result in the in the model, in the resulting model. So that's something that you could use. And another feature, which is still in just plan, planning phase, essentially, so nothing have been developed for that, is model registry, which is essentially package registry just for uh, machine learning models. So it's like a specialized version of our existing feature, which is package registry just for machine learning models. That's a lot of information to unpack, right? And I just want to make it a little easier for our listeners. So what we are saying is there is a lot of features that's currently, not currently there, but in the beta version uh, that supports the ML 
workflows. Uh, and basically, you can start using that in the near future in GitLab. And if you want to create a competitor for ChatGPT. I mean, I probably wouldn't read a lot of blogs. I'll probably go and ask ChatGPT itself. But anyway, once <laughs> we figure that out, we can then go use GitLab as a tool to do it. That's what we are saying. Yeah, pretty much that's that's what I was saying. <laughs> uh, so you didn't mention a couple of features already called out the experimental learning workflow and how we can use the different um, modules within GitLab pipelines. Um, so what is going to come out first? I mean, what's going to be the biggest feature that's coming out in the in the near future? It's it's a one hundred percent the experiment tracking feature. So the mm -hmm. one that you are using for your so you are using your local computer to run the actual experiments, but the result of the experiment is ending up in the server. That's what is coming, and this is as I mentioned, it's essentially a reimplementation of a backend of this this tool called MLflow, but it's not like a 100% re-implementation. So MLflow does much more than just this. This is one feature of this open source tool, which we will incorporate. It will go into private beta, so interested customers can give it a try, see how it fits into the overall GitLab workflow. And based on their feedback, we will either implement more features for from MLflow or we will basically branch out and, and implement new stuff based on how it better, uh, how can it better work together with the already existing GitLab features. But the beauty of this is that we are only re-implementing the server part, right? So MLflow works like that you basically have a library in your own machine learning code, usually Python code, right? And that library is the same. You basically just telling the library, okay, upload this not to MLflow, but GitLab. So that's mm -hmm. all you need to configure, and it works completely transparently. So that's why we choose this path, because we saw that many, many people are using this MLflow already. So it's like it's much easier to switch if you don't need to re rewrite all of your scripts, right? And everything that you've done so far, you just use the existing tool and just switch out the backend in the picture. To clarify for the uninformed, such as myself, um, when you say an experiment, is uploaded into GitLab. Is that the the artifact that is coming out of a machine learning run? What, what exactly is an experiment? It's it's literally that. So an experiment is made up of the algorithm, which is literally source code, usually some Python code, the data, which is a big can be a big data set, a small data set, whatever, and a bunch of parameters. So basically, you are saying you are you are telling the model is basically the code. You are telling the code, okay crunch this data with these parameters. That's an experiment. And that will, you can imagine it will split, spit out <laughs> a model, a model candidate. That's one experiment. And then you are a data scientist on your own laptop running these experiments with, essentially you change either the data set, either the code, either the parameter. Sometimes the only thing you change are the parameters, right? Everything is the same, change the parameters. And you will see all of these experiments showing up in GitLab. You will see the result. And the result is essentially the model itself and some kind of uh, data about the success of the model, which you define yourself like, OK, this is the this is the metric. Metric is the right word here, the metric that I'm looking for. And you can actually see, OK, it improved based on my fiddling with the parameter or or didn't. And then I can just 
say that, okay, I run this experiment three times, right? With different set of parameters. Okay, this was the best. Let's let's go with this one. I will I want to keep this one, the result of this one, because this actually improved the success criteria of my model. That's, that's, that's the whole workflow essentially with MLflow right now and will be the workflow with GitLab as well when this feature will come out of uh, the, so to say, dog fooding phase. Okay. So speaking of experiments then, can you integrate that approach with the current way GitLab handles environments and sort of be able to promote an experiment into particular environments that use the data for something? Not yet, but these are exactly the kind of discussion that we are having with the customers right now, right? So that's why we choose this approach, like, okay, just implement this very basic or not basic, but core feature of MLflow. And these, these are exactly the use cases. But for example, there's a use case which you already got from our customers, like, let's imagine you have a merge request, right? For your uh, uh, machine learning model. And you would like to see in the merge request view if the changes that the person who created the merge request, the changes that he or she made to the model basically increase the improve the metrics or not. Right? So like a like a widget, like currently what you have with the with the code quality widget that you can see in the merge request, something like that we would like to integrate into the core GitLab workflow. So these are exactly the use cases that we are literally just thinking about, okay, how can we make it more, less like just a siloed feature and more like part of the whole, whole GitLab workflow. Neat. How about testing? Uh, so what is happening on that set of things? How do you test these experiments from within GitLab as part of the pipeline? Is there something that you can do today? So, so you mean like distributing the models? Um, so you mentioned about the success rate for experiments, right? How do you calculate that and you know make sure that you haven't introduced? Oh, any... yeah, that that's on the on the side of the actual data scientist who is creating the experiment. So they mm. based on the algorithm and based on what they want to achieve with the actual model, they define these metrics. So right. it's 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 more or less part of the Python script that is crunching the data and outputting the model, it's outputting these metrics as well as, as part of this experiment run. I see. And one of the major features that will help teams onboard is auto DevOps within uh, GitLab, right? So are you planning to introduce any of these pipelines as part of auto DevOps? Now that's something that I have no information about, but actually also a very great idea because I personally see a lot of my customers and partners just going with auto DevOps initially, right? So, right. Yeah, that that would be actually really nice. Just like saying, okay, this not not even you could do it the similar way that auto DevOps works right now, right? So you can just say GitLab will recognize that this is a machine learning project and just right. configure auto DevOps in a way that okay, this is like a pipeline for a machine learning project. That would be well, nice, yeah. Peter. You can have that one on DevOps decrypted. Uh, just tell him Jobin sent you. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that is of interesting to me when using GitLab as a tool was, you know, small improvements uh, that actually makes use of machine learning in the backend. Like for example, when you create a pull request, it automatically suggests the approvers 
uh, that can work on that pull request uh, based on who is on vacation, who is not, who had been reviewing similar pull requests. Um, it's a simple feature, but very powerful because you don't have to then consciously go looking for reviewers. And um, other features in GitLab like this, you're consciously adding uh, using machine learning in the backend. Yeah, there are some stuff that is brewing, but currently that's the that's the one that's already in the product. That's what what is what I would really usually when customers ask me, okay, but can you give me an example how machine learning is used at GitLab? That's what I point them at. Basically, what we have is a product team at GitLab who is working just in this AI related stuff that can be used as part of GitLab. And one of the most, uh, at least for me, most exciting feature that more or less almost everybody in this team is working on. So basically the, the experiment tracking, which I mentioned is a single engineer project. So at GitLab, we have a concept of single engineer engineering teams. So like a team which has a single member, right? The point of that is that one person can iterate much faster on new stuff until this thing gets into a certain level of maturity. And at that time, a product team can take it over, right? So that's the experiment tracking. But we have another feature, which for me is very interesting is the, I think we call it right now, AI assisted coding or code writing or something like that. So basically it's a competitor to GitHub's uh, co-pilot, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say it's GitLab's answer to that. So that's what most, I would say 99% of the engineering effort right now on the AI space inside GitLab is spent on that. And that's that's coming. And that will be also part of the, so we have this new web ID. If some of you have, haven't have missed or have missed the last update to GitLab. So that came into beta, which is like Visual Studio Code integrated into GitLab, right? Mm -hmm. So now if you edit code in the browser, it will be VS Code. And this AI-assisted editing will be part of that experience. I have no information about if it will be available on your local IDE as well, but honestly, I would be really surprised if it if it won't be. So let's see that. But these are the these are the areas that are getting the most focus from us right now. Yeah, definitely like the new IDE, and I have heard really good positive feedback about that. Uh, but basically what you're saying is GitLab as a tool, you can use it for, you know, machine learning development, but at the same time, GitLab itself is implementing a lot of features that uses the power of machine learning behind the scenes and making life easier for developers. Yeah, absolutely. And the most important part, I think, is that the MLOps features that we are putting into GitLab, we are using them as well, right? So GitLab, but this, this is always true about GitLab. So we use GitLab to develop GitLab. But the MLOps feature, so for example, this experiment tracking is right now being used internally by our teams before it's going into private beta. So I, I usually that's what we do, that we try, try the stuff ourselves. If we like it, yeah, then we release it to our customers. If we don't, then yeah, just <laughs> get over with it. Good old dog fooding. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I'm reading my notes from a GitLab issue right now, so come on. <laughs> <laughs> so what is coming up next? What is in this space that GitLab is not telling us yet? Not telling? But you're I allowed don't really to tell know. us. No, uh, that's it. If, if there are something like that, even I don't know about it. Usually it's 
our own issue board is open, right? So apart from the the security vulnerabilities of the GitLab project itself is open on gitlab.com. So it's as much open to everybody as it's open to me. Yeah, the, the biggest thing is really this AI-assisted code editing, I would say. Peter Bajo, Channel Solutions Architect for GitLab. Thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of DevOps Decrypted. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Listeners, what do you think of MLOps? Let us know in the comment section on YouTube or in your favorite podcast app. Once again, thank you to Peter for taking part in that interview. I learned a whole lot. It was super interesting. All right. For our last segment, I just want to know from the three of you, what's next? What do we need to be concerned about? John Mort, what do I need to be keeping in mind when I'm going about my DevOps practicing day to day? Uh, so something, something that I think we'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more on a, on a future podcast is um, is uh, infrastructure from code as a, as an evolution of like the of of infrastructure as code, and I think that's a really exciting space like that to um, to, to 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 be to be looking at. I think that's a really um, it's it's a it's a novel take on the things. It's about reducing the friction to get things into production and uh, things like that. And I think that that you know I'm really really interested in that. I thought I understood infrastructure as code, John. Infrastructure from code, that's blowing my mind. We'll have to talk more about that another time. Rasmus, what do, what do folks need to be concerned about? So I think it'll be interesting when we have more than one big viral chatbot to see what happens when they kind of go up against each other. Maybe even literally. Like what happens if you have ChatGPT have a discussion with Bard? I mean, that's, it's not going to explode the universe just yet, but it sort of also links back to, we have these amazing tools now. We can have robots, you know, write up real estate listings and Amazon entries and things like that. But then you kind of, I hope that it'll also lead to a point of retrospection where you sort of like, well, wait a minute. It used to be that like real estate listings that took a lot of extra steps to really make their entry look like shiny and attractive and so on managed to make more sales. What happens when anybody can do that with the press of a button? Will we just have bots putting out fluff and other bots that'll read the fluff and summarize it to you? I, I have said this, Ra yeah. Rasmus. I have. I think the internet's just going to be bots talking to each other before long. One of the things about that is. I wonder if it can help us make more meaningful discussions. I don't have a whole lot of hope here. It really will probably just be bots talking to bots on the internet. But maybe we can get to the point of thinking about, you know, why don't we just not put all this subjective fluff around things and just get down to the objective details so we don't need all this stuff now that we can do it with the press of a button? Like, let's just get back to simplicity. Well, Rasmus, maybe the machines will decide that the humans are the extra fluff. And that'll be that. Jobin, what's the future hold? Look into your crystal ball. Tell tell us what you see that people need to be thinking about coming up. I mean, I was just thinking about machines deciding, uh, you know, humans being the fluff. That's a lot of positivity there. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to predict the future. But uh, with all these AI boards coming out, you know, one can't stop thinking about how people will be using it in the future. Erasmus talked about, you know, boards talking to each other. 
I did remember uh, back in maybe 2015, 2016, when self-driving cars was becoming one huge thing. Uh, I, I think Musk and everybody around him uh, was projecting this idea of one of the biggest advantages is going to be, you know, cars can talk to each other. And so the accidents will be much, much lesser because, you know, they're already aware of where each car is and you know, it's going to be a wonderful world. But the truth is, you know, the self-driving cars, that's not a reality even today, 2022, right? I mean, it was supposed to be in 2016, 2017. That hasn't happened yet. So I think we have a long way to go. I mean, it, it's great. Chat GPT adds a lot of value. I like it. I personally use it. Um, but it's all going to be how people are going to use it. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of time before boards, boards take over control of the entire world. That's not going to happen. Not when we are alive. I wouldn't say that, but probably not in the next five years or 10 years. I mean, I know it's off topic, but clearly you haven't seen the Boston Dynamics robot. I don't mind to say it. I mean, I have positivity for today. <laughs> I'm, I hear you. I hear you. No, I, I, I hear you. And I think you're right. I don't think the robots are coming yet. And on that note, that's it for this month's edition of DevOps Decrypted. Thank you so much for listening. Listeners, do us a favor. We need your help. We want to hear from you. What do you want to hear about in the world of DevOps? What are you interested in? What future technology do you think could take over the world instead of ChatGPT? Let us know. Please review and comment on our podcast wherever you interact with your podcast, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, whatever. Review, comment, get in touch with us on social at Adaptivist on your favorite social media platform. For Jobin Kuravila, Rasmus Prestholm, and John Mort, I'm Ryan Spilkin, and we'll see you next time on DevOps Decrypted, part of the Adaptivist Live network of shows.